Join me, Paul Ash, in a beautiful soundscape as we explore the world in the Sunday Times Travel Podcast. Find it at sundaytimes.co.za. You're listening to the Sunday Times Travel Podcast, and I'm Paul Ash. I'm sitting here with a man called Rusty Labuskakhni. He's a Zimbabwean, a former hunter, a pilot, a public speaker. I've got him here today to talk about his book, which has been recently published. It's called Beating Chains. And the key thing about this book is it's um, an exploration of injustice and how to overcome it. I'm going to give you the short version. Rusty did 10 years in a Zimbabwean prison for a murder that didn't happen, that he didn't commit. Rusty, good morning. Welcome morning, to the show. Paul. How are you doing? Very good. Good to be here. Thanks. Lekker. We had a good trip up to Zimbabwe last week. And we I was did. really impressed with your kind of, your attitude and your kind of love for that country, despite what, you know, what it did to you. Yeah. You know, just give us the short version of what happened uh, in 2003. Paul, I had a fishing resort on Lake Kariba and there was a dispute between a fishing cooperative and myself. They were consumptive netting fish and situated about one kilometer along the shore away from the from the fish breeding ground where my camp was situated. And they were forever netting fish in the fish breeding area. <coughs> and there was conflict in there where I would remove their nets. So I was antagonizing um, their well-being really, but there's a lot of other places to catch fish. And then in December 2000, the land invasions started in Zim. And it appeared that the injustice started creeping in everywhere. And I chased two poachers in a steel boat um, that were setting nets in the fish breeding area. And as soon as they saw me with my co-accused coming towards them, they started paddling hastily for the shore in an effort to get away from us. Knowing there were known poachers, I drove my boat towards them to scare them off, and the wake of my boat tilted their boat, causing them to jump out into the water, which was about one and a half meters deep. They were about three meters from the shore and soon scrambled to dry land. My friend and I then watched as they ran away into the bush, thinking nothing more of it. The following day, the police arrived and accused us of drowning one of those poachers. Wow. And then it got very political after that, Paul. Um, you know, there were marches outside. They, they, two day, three days later, um, the police asked us on the, the day after when they arrived and accused us. They asked us when we're leaving. We said in three days' time. They asked us to report to the police station on our way back. It's a very, very remote area. So 70 k's away was the police station. We arrived there, we were detained immediately. Then two days later, transferred to Binga police station. And there, the, uh, the tension was unbelievable. And there were marches on the street with huge banners, 200 people, you know, whites killed black, they must hang. It became a very big political thing in all the newspapers around the country. And that's where it all started going wrong. So you were kind of 
not so much in the wrong place at the wrong time, but the incident happened at a time when tensions were unbearably strained. Yeah. And I, I'm, I'm guessing from the book that you, you got the court records, the court transcripts. Yes. And, you know, just looking at it, you could see that the police didn't have any evidence against you. Nothing. And it looks like a political fitter. It was, Paul. I mean, I think in history, around the world, only six people have been convicted of murder without a body. Wow. And in the, in the trial, very little was, was produced to prove that somebody died. It was just, you know, he drowned and the crocodiles ate him. And that was it. Despite state witnesses stating that they've witnessed 18 people being taken by crocodiles and there's always something you find of the person and they they didn't buy any of it yeah because habeas corpus is a fundamental cornerstone of law yeah you have a body yeah if you don't have a body then what i know well you know the law states you can't uh, accuse someone of murder without first proving somebody died yeah yeah wow i mean it's a horrifying story and you know it begins with your night in kami maximum Tell me a bit about Kami, because it sounds like from the book. <laughs> yeah, Paul, I, yeah. you know, just to give you an idea, before I got in there, I had five safari camps, a fishing resort on Lake Kariba, flying my own aircraft. So I was doing very, very well living the life. And then you go from an innocent man, full of confidence, everything going perfectly in his life, to being accused of murder. And my first evening in there, First of all, you arrive there in laying handcuffs and leg irons. When you, when you leave the courthouse, it was on Main Street during rush hour, and everyone was watching. And, and I was a well-known figure. I was a national rugby player, so everybody knew who I was. So it was incredibly humiliating. Then you arrive at the prison, which is 25 k's out of town, and they take your document, you know, your, your particulars and everything, remove your handcuffs and leg irons, then you have to strip naked and walk into the maximum security exercise yard stark naked. And I was, there were a thousand guys in there, I was the only white guy. It was unbelievably terrifying. I'm I mean, sure. I always had this phobia <laughs> sure. about going to prison. You know, you see the guys working on the streets in the white uniforms and here in South Africa, I think it's orange. And I just, you don't look at them because, you know, it's like, they're a different part of society. Well, they're actually normal people, but when you go in there, it's bloody terrifying. Well, it's a visceral fear, isn't it? A, yeah. being locked up and incarcerated, especially for someone like you who is used to the endless horizons of the bush. But then, you know, to be basically caged is a fundamental human phobia. Yeah. Uh, I don't think, I don't know any of humans who... No, it was terrifying, eh, Paul, big time. But, you know, some of the things I learned in there, Paul, on the first evening... So we got in there, the cells were 13 meters long. Well, first of all, they, you, you crouched down in front of the officers and there were four officers and they bombarded me with questions about where I come from, my family, my crime, all kinds of things for, for about 15 minutes, naked, in front of a thousand guys. Wow. So that was, you know, they, they try and break you right from the start. Then they escorted me, one of the prisoners escorted me up to my cell. And that was 13 meters long by three meters wide. We were 78 guys in there. 
and everyone, each person had 33 centimeters of space marked out on the walls in chalk. Okay, so 33 centimeters is three centimeters longer than your average school ruler. Yeah. So think about that, people. So think about 30 centimeters. That was Rusty's living space. And sleeping and yeah, space. <laughs> it was horrific, Paul, because first of all, you, it was not allowed to sleep on your back, but you couldn't fit anyway. You know, someone my size, you only have. I mean, if I lie on my side, I take up 33 centimeters. And then it's three meters wide. So your legs all cross over in the middle because, you know, everybody's over one and a half meters tall. And you, you've got your... There's no blankets or, and there's no bedding. There's no furniture whatsoever in a Zim prison. No beds, no tables, no chairs, no cupboards, nothing. Yeah, you said you, uh, after six years you got to sit on your first chair or something. Seven and a half years, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Yeah, so... Um, um, you wrap your clothes around your toothbrush and toothpaste well that gets stolen and that was your pillow then you had three blankets so you fold two of them several times to fit your space that's cushioning against the cold concrete floor then covered yourself with the third one and your legs all cross over in the middle and you all face the same direction otherwise you breathe into each other and when you turned over, it was all together. I mean, it was horrific. Eh? And that was all night, going on all, all night. night. And that was for many, many years. But that, that's incredible. I mean, it's, 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 I mean, it's, the conditions are, are horrific. No, they, they, are. Were, they were unbelievable. Something that I remember that night, Paul, that uh, I love to share. So when I went to prison, I was, I was running five of my own companies and just working like a machine. And when I got into the cell that night on the first evening, now I've been bitten by lice. I've never seen lice before. They bite you day and night. It is unbelievable. And you're squashed with all these people on the hard concrete floor. And I remember lying there and thinking, this is not too bad. They can do whatever they want. That pressure of the release of all that stuff I'd taken on over the years. And I think it's a big lesson for guys um, for me especially, I swore that that evening I said I will never ever again take on so much in my life because I was working for my businesses. You know, they they weren't working for me, so they owned me. And I think there's a big there's a big lesson there. We don't don't get yourself into something that's going to own you. Yeah, see, that's another kind of prison, isn't it? Yeah, just uh, working all the time. Um, you know, it's what to be flippant, and uh, you've done the real hard time. People call it a jail without a lock. Yeah, you know, yeah. but it's they're both prisons. One is physical, and one is of the mind. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, it's horrific. Um, how is it that Kami got to be such a bad place? One assumes that it wasn't built with the kind of horrific conditions in mind that uh, that that were there when when you when you were incarcerated. Yeah, Paul, it was built in 1956. And, I mean, over the years, with the, you know, all the, there's a three-story building, and all the, the plumbing is on the outside of the building. So when you have your sewage pipes for all the toilets running down the side of the building, and when they get blocked, they were cast iron pipes. So um, sections were cut out of them with a cutting torch to remove the blockages. And then you can't weld that patch on again so they wrap it with strips of blanket and they would forever be festering with maggots and I mean just the, the smell Paul and then 
that was that was when things were good. Then when it got bad and blockages came, then they just smashed the the sewage pipes and they would leak. And there are twelve toilets in Kami Maximum Security Prison. Twelve. Twelve, yeah. For how many prisoners? For one thousand prisoners. And they are on three different floors. So it's four on each floor. And the bottom floor, all the toilets never worked. So you had eight toilets, and there were fiberglass toilets cemented into solid concrete blocks um, to squat over. But when you have blockages, you can't get to the pipes. So there was a hole, about a tennis ball-sized hole, smashed into the back of the toilet bowl so the plumber's stainless steel rods could flow down into the into the pipes to unblock them. But that just meant that all the smell comes flowing out day and night. Day and night. So the whole place, Paul, stunk of excretion. Well, this is, I mean, one assumes that the government or the prison authorities could have done something to fix this. But this now sounds like a calculated effort to degrade you, to degrade all the people in there. And it, it, it makes one think that there was no interest in reforming people. No. Prison... Then was just revenge. It was punishment, Paul. Purely a punishment. Um, you know, when you go in there, and they tell you in there, when you go in and you're full of confidence, flying high, bulletproof, they crush you. They crush your confidence, your spirit, your soul, everything. And when you get out, no matter how confident you were before, it is tough to pick yourself up. But the, the whole mentality in the prison and I, I believe it's in most prisons, is to to cut you down in size. Because when they see you comfortable, now I did a, a talk in Leoka prison yesterday, and the guys there, the one guy was getting a bit uh, full of himself, so they took his kettle away. I mean, we that was like a hotel story for us. <laughs> he had a kettle in you. Yeah, <laughs> took his kettle away. Um, and he said, I oh, know, it's just because they didn't want me too comfortable. So in, in different levels, it's the same in every prison. But in, in a, a Zim prison where there is nothing. So I just want to give you a picture, Paul. There's no radio, no TV. There's nothing to give you an incentive to behave in prison. It's just the only entertainment is stories by hardcore armed robbers, hour after hour, how to break into different cars, how to break into houses, what gangs to join, where to buy guns, where to sell merchandise. It just goes on and on and on. And there's a lot of innocent people in there. And these are their heroes. So, so it becomes get, like a university. A well, they call it the college. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, and they, the beatings are horrific in, in prison in some. Yeah, I want you to talk about that because that is serious human <clears throat> rights abuse. The way you describe the beatings, I mean, it's like torture. Um, and the guys put you in handcuffs and leg irons, so they handcuff you behind your back, put you in leg irons, and lie you on your stomach, and you have your feet in the air. So the soles of your feet are facing, uh, facing up, and they beat you under the soles of your feet. And sometimes the, it depends on the offenses. So if, they, if they're stabbings and stuff like that, um, you can get 100 beatings under each foot. And that's with a one-meter-long rubber baton. I promise you one, just one, it is unbelievably painful. And you know, I, mean, I saw guys with broken legs, broken heel bones, broken feet, 
uh, they're beating, and some guys would fear because it's like 40 officers attacking from everywhere, all wanting to, you know, it's like a pack of hyena. Yeah, and this was the interesting thing. All the officers wanting their, their <coughs> turn with the baton. I mean, it sounds like a kind of gathering of psychopaths. Yeah, bullet. I think it was, you know, when you look at it, I often prayed about it. You know, I just thought, God help these guys because there's something wrong with them. You know, they, it was just a, like an outlet. I mean, they, everyone was suffering in the whole country. It was during the Zimbabwe dollar crash. So there was no food outside of prison on the shelves, anywhere. So everyone was upset, you know, there was anger. But don't take it out on a prisoner. That's, I mean, they're prisoners, you know, and they, they're rough and wild. And But that's the nature of institutions, whether they're the police forces or the army or yeah. schools. It's um, give the weak man a uniform and a baton and a gun. Yeah. And you're going to get, you're going to unleash the dogs of hell. Yeah. You know? no, absolutely. It's uh, someone that gives them uh, authority over someone that they normally wouldn't have. Yeah, they mean, love it. I, I know your dad, you talk in the book about how your dad meted out a few serious thrashings. Yeah. Do you think that in boarding school um, kind of had a, a, an effect on, 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 your, on your psyche that either made it my, were you able to deal with prison conditions better? Do you think maybe it set you up to go down that path where you're quite aggressive and... and Paul, uh, I think um, the boarding school had a hell of a lot bigger effect on me than my father. Hmm. So I think I probably got maximum a dozen beatings from my dad, but they were severe. I mean, I would mess myself every time he took on it. But from, from about the age of 10, I don't recall being beaten by him. Maybe because and by then you could probably beat him back. No, no. <laughs> he was a big man. Eh? <laughs> and he was a wonderful man. I mean, it, I loved him to bits. Eh? But he just said that when when you're wrong and I was naughty, I got badly beaten. I mean, you know, I wouldn't do that to my children ever. Um, but I think the resilience you build up. Now, I, I believe, Paul, that that people say, you know, I don't know anyone I could have could have gone through what you went through. But I believe you can build resilience. I don't think you're born with it. And I think going to boarding school at ten years, at six years old and all the way through um, my life, and then from 12 years, you know, I lost my dad when I was 12, so that's very traumatic. Then from 12 all the way through school, my teenage years, I had the Rhodesian Bush War. And that was a wild environment there. I mean, the war creates wildness. I mean, the you know, the barroom brawls and that I was exposed to, not always involved in. Obviously, when I was young, you can't. But you become wild. It's quite you know? a weird thing, you know, because I know, you know, it was, a, it was an internal war. So yeah. the guys were fighting in the bush, yeah. in the chatine, I think they called yeah. it. <laughs> and um, then coming back to town on pass and yeah. just renting all that yeah. combat stress, that PTSD, that, that yeah. fatigue, that anger in barroom brawls. And 90% um, of those guys were under 25, eh? That's unbelievable. Kids, eh? Unreal. I know, before, I mean, no one should be going... I, I believe the human brain only really starts... is only mature by 25. So anyone under yeah. the age of 25 is utterly malleable. Their brains aren't fully formed. Yeah. That's what I've heard from other combat veterans. Okay. And so you had this, yeah. this war going on, yeah. which I think did a serious amount of damage to the, to the country's soul. Absolutely. And then... I was always a very 
passionate rugby player. And rugby is a game by gentlemen, <laughs> but it's wild. Um, so, you know, the, the rough side comes out in that. So I think, you know, from, from boarding school, the war, playing rugby and water polo, which is also rough, um, it set me up. Uh, and also, I loved the bush. So I loved the, the wildness of things and challenge. You know, when you, and hunting is always thought of about killing and all that. It's not about killing. It's about conservation and the love of nature. I mean, when you, if you want to know something about an animal, follow it and understand it and smell it and feel it. You know, not just take a picture of it. Yeah. How did this, these ideas or these concepts help you in prison? Because as a, as a guy who loved the bush, yeah. it must have been utterly devastating to be locked up and unable to even see it, to even smell it. Yeah. But yet you must have carried part of it with you inside. You know, Paul, it's amazing because you self-counsel yourself on what to think in prison. So when I thought about the injustice, uh, why me, what have I ever done to deserve all this? The pain was too much. So you block it out. You think about I was engaged to be married. I think about someone else with my fiance. It was too painful, block that out about my mates in the bush, enjoying fishing trips, everything. It all hurt inside. There's a correlation between your brain and your tummy and you feel it in your stomach. So you don't think those things, you block them out completely. And I had, I had this fantasy girlfriend named Cherie and we fly all over the world in our private jet and catch mullet <laughs> in Mexico. And I lived this beautiful world outside of that horror. And that's what made me happy. It was my way of getting over all that stuff. So, and then, you know, it's been proven that every time we think, see, and feel, our mind generates a signal that affects every cell in our body. And thinking is 98% of that signal. So what you think actually affects every cell in your body and brain. Yeah, I can And it's a that. powerful thing. No. It doesn't matter if it's a fantasy. It's a fact. And you could use that fantasy and you could block out what was going on in the prison. I mean, you, you could sort of fly away. As they, I did. As they say. And you know what was funny, Paul? So sometimes we'd wake up in the morning. Now, I'd share my fantasies with my prison mates. And then sometimes in the morning, they'd say, hey, Russ, how's it going? I said, no, like, how's Cherie? I said, hey, last night was cool. Man. <laughs> but you had to find these small bits of happiness in all that horror to keep sane. And oh, you learn that. Life in prison or in Las Vegas is still just life. Yeah. It's what you make of it, no matter where you are. You know, it's an incredible story of endurance, I think. And I yeah. wanted to talk about that because you endured. You did 10 years. Yeah. And I was really taken with the description of Phil, your yeah. fellow inmate, who was also banged up for yeah. on, on a fit-up. Yeah. And he had that attitude that and I've seen conscripts get. Yeah. This is nothing. You can yeah. beat me, you can insult me, you can degrade me. Yeah. This is nothing. Yeah. That must have taken enormous strength, inner strength, to be able to hold on to that belief and say that to a prison Absolutely. guard. What was it like? Uh, Paul, he, he was a godsend for me. I mean, Phil was one of those old farmers. He's 11 years older than me. I was 42 and I went in, so he was 53. And uh, I met him one year after my incarceration. I was at Kami when I went to Chikarubi. I found him there. And when you when you incarcerated um, with nobody from your culture, it's very very difficult. I mean, you you hear them all talking in their language about what they did when they were young, and you know all different things. And 
you don't have that. You're just isolated. So when Full arrived, he really, you know, when I was down, things are down, he was there for me and vice versa. But I promise you, when my fiance wrote and told me she's moving on after four years, I was completely finished. Yeah. I, you know, I there was no food, there was no water, people were dying all around us. And I just given up. I lost 11 kgs in five weeks. And I saw Phil after five weeks in the hospital. And he said, Russ, you're going to be one of these. These guys dying all around us. And, this, and they were really literally dying around you in your cells. It was unreal. I mean, this is so <coughs> this is in the midst of a major cholera epidemic. And yeah. also you weren't getting any water. I believe the water was being carried into the jail. Yeah. Well, in 25 liter containers. In my first six years, Paul, so from I went in in April 2003 until March 2009. I witnessed over 2,200 guys die just in where I was. That's horrific. It was unbelievable. When we were transferred to the medium security prison uh, in Arari Central, out of 1,200 of us prisoners at Arari Central, 432 died in eight months. That's more than one third of us. So conditions were equally bad in Harare Central then? No, they were worse. That was during the cholera outbreak. Okay. Yeah. But the thing is, Paul, there was no food outside of prison. You know, people were, were also dying out in the reservations. So it was a, it was a major. It was like a perfect storm. You know, you know the prisoners didn't have a support network. We got the last. I mean, you guys were blessed really to have your sister especially i know she was a, a trooper yeah and a kind of supplier network to could bring you food because you weren't getting much in jail no well i was 78 kgs in june 2006. um i was heavy at school and i remember that's when prison headquarters started allowing relatives to deliver food to their loved ones daily because guys were dying so badly and my sister, both my sisters fed me for three months selling furniture and scraping money from wherever. And then Lynn sold her clay pot business and gave up her career just to feed me for four years. Now think about your sister doing that, Paul. That yeah. takes a very special person. Yeah. And I tell you, I wouldn't be sitting here if it wasn't she for hadn't her. Done that. She's amazing. Uh, what was it like for them coming to the jail to visit you? They, I mean, they, they would have had an inkling of the conditions. They wouldn't have seen the beatings, obviously, but they must yeah. have known it was going on. How did Paul, they cope? You know, Paul, I tried not to show them what was happening and what I was going through. But when I was released, they told me they knew everything. And uh, to see them, you know, you get to know your sisters very well when you grow up with them. And you can tell when they're hurting. And they very, very seldom left the prison without tears. And that's painful, you know, when you're lying in, on that concrete floor in the prison, you think of all those things, you know, mm. it's painful. But the thought of eating the food that my sister had just made was a huge boost, just that fact. And uh, it's just a different world, Paul. You're isolated from everything. So if you get newspapers, they are cut to pieces. They go through all the officers' hands first, so you get them three days later. All the books are so badly censored uh, I received a, a U magazine. There were nine stories, seven were cut out. And our complaint officer said, if you don't like what I do, then don't, don't bring your magazines here. And they were through the officer in charge. So, but this was just basic sadism or cruelty. There was no reason to do this. It was no. just another way of trying to <clears throat> break you. Yeah. Then Paul, you talk about water. 
So in 2005, Harare City ran out of water. For three years, while in Chikuri Maximum Security Prison, each prisoner was allocated only one plastic cup of water a day. One cup of dirty orange city runoff water from a nearby dam carried by farm prisoners. That was to drink, clean your teeth, wash your face, bath, everything. Three years. For three years. Three years. Some guys didn't bath for nine months. And the only time they bath is when it rained. And then running to the exercise yard and excitedly have a thorough scrub. And it was like Christmas. Yeah, you have that sketch in your book. It yeah. It looks like, I mean, <laughs> it looks quite innocent in a way. These guys all scrubbing up under the well, gutters. Well, it was like Christmas. It was our only, you know, one of the highlights of our, of our year. I mean, that you remember it with such clarity. Absolutely. It says, says everything. And we'd fight over the, you know, the broken gutters. And then we'd have big streams of the gutters. And we'd all take turns quickly. I carry up, let me put soap. And then we'd jump in. I need, I need the water. I need the water. So, yeah, you just said found the humor and everything at all i was going to ask about that i mean humor must have been quite a tonic if you could if you could access it if you could find it there yeah did you and how and i did paul you know there were some characters in there i mean it i did. like big ass I <laughs> I love the stories of big ass <laughs> but you know who was the funniest was Munyaradzi. yeah it called me so he was just when you looked at him you started laughing because he he was like a like a little comic he was a tough, short little guy and big eyes. And, and he was just always had that face, that, that look where, and he's always laughing and joking and bouncing around. He's, he's full of energy. And he would sing the guitar. We had a broken out old guitar with three strings. And he'd strum away on the thing and sing these country songs. And I'd have to pay him a cigarette or two to get him to sing. And he'd sing away and we'd laugh. And I remember he, you know, I started exercising in there. And, when I, the first time I did, it was after about a week, and the prisoners all came and said, no, no, you can't, you can't exercise, the, the guards don't allow it. So I said, well, go and tell them I'm exercising. Next minute, five guards arrived. One of them was three stars, so it's like a, an officer. He said, what are you doing? I said, I'm exercising, officer. He said, we don't allow that. I said, officer, just to release stress and, you know, just to keep healthy. He said, we don't allow uh, exercising. So I said, well... Why don't you tell the officer in charge that? So they left, and that was the end of that. <laughs> no, but anyway, direct action. <clears throat> yeah, so Munya, now, when I, now I started getting a lot of guys wanting to join me because now the officers, they obviously saw the officer in charge, and he said, leave him alone. Um, so I had a you know, bit of a following, so I'd have six, eight guys exercising with me. But Munya used to get jealous. So when I was exercising, he would take a, these rolled-up blankets. We used to roll our blankets in a special way and, and tie them. It's, it's a special way they do it, like a, like a rolled beef, and pile them all in rows along the walls. And while I was like doing push-ups, he would throw these things at me and then run out the door laughing up the cell. So I left one close to me, and he came closer, came closer, and then as he threw it, I grabbed one and threw it. And he was running past the toilet. Now, the toilet is a cement block in the corner of the toilet with a round stainless steel bowl. And I let rip and let, let him about two meters and hit him straight on the back of the head. And he went flying into the toilet. <laughs> <laughs> we laughed and laughed like crazy, but these are the funny things Just that like you- small, small humor. And it yeah, must have meant well, so much. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. And you know, what I loved about them, it was, it was all everyday little things in life that you find humor in. You didn't yeah. have to have a big fan fancy joke or anything. You just laughed at the everyday little thing. Rusty, we're going to have to end it now. I just wanted to say thank you for coming on the show. Thank you, Paul. Um, his book is Beating Chains. 
Um, it's Victory Over Injustice. And this is Rusty Labuskakni, hunter, conservationist, um, former prisoner, released prisoner. Last question. Yeah. You have no bitterness whatsoever. Nothing. That's amazing. The biggest lesson I learned in prison was forgiveness, Paul. And uh, I have the ability, we all have the ability to sever all, all anger, bitterness, revenge ties to the past. If you let it go, it's all behind you. You're only carrying it in your head. Leave it. Move forward. There's so much more in life to look forward to. It's a good message and a very powerful one to end off on. Thank you very much, Rusty. Thank you, Paul. See you in the bush. Okay. Let's go.